Well, let's get back to the one-month anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. The Prime Minister is in Brussels tonight, of course, to take part of those exceptional meetings, or specifically an exceptional NATO meeting tomorrow. G7 leaders are also meeting. President Biden is also there. But Justin Trudeau used a speech to the European Parliament today to urge European leaders to unite against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. We must ensure that the decision to invade a sovereign, independent country is understood to be a strategic failure that carries with it ruinous costs for Putin and Russia. As I mentioned, Trudeau will join other NATO leaders, including President Biden, tomorrow to coordinate the alliance's response to the Russian invasion. And that will follow, uh, a G7 leaders meeting will follow before he comes back here on Friday. Well, today, NATO Secretary General said the military organization is setting up new multinational battle groups in Eastern Europe to deter Russia from launching an attack on any Eastern NATO members. Here's Jens Stoltenberg. Putin must end this war allow aid and safe passage of civilians, and engage in real diplomacy. Jens Stoltenberg, I guess the real issue here is that the war continues. Russia continues to bombard buildings in Ukraine. It's not doing a particularly effective job uh, so far. It certainly hasn't seized what they thought they would seize in just days. 72 hours has become a month with little to show for it, but the war at least and the death and the fleeing continues. Stoltenberg says NATO leaders will likely agree to send more assistance to Ukraine, including equipment to help the country protect against chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. Can you imagine? So is it enough? Joining me now is Alexander Lenoshka. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. I wanted to bring you back because it was exactly a month ago that you and I were on air as this invasion began. We essentially spoke as the invasion began. I want to take you back just a month uh, to hear what we had to say. I know this is a very fluid situation, um, but uh, what what have you been able to glean from what's unfolding uh, in Ukraine tonight? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I wish that the circumstances were a lot better. Obviously, what is happening right now is quite staggering. I'm stunned. But what we know so far is that there have been explosions reported in various uh, Ukrainian cities, including even the capital city of Kiev, as well as the port city of Odessa. So this extends far beyond eastern Ukraine. Little did we know then, Alexander, what was about to happen, but Look, let's look back over the last month. I mean, I think at the beginning, we all thought this might end very quickly, and it certainly hasn't. That was indeed the expectation of a lot of analysts who have studied Russian military affairs for quite some time now. The assessment has been that Russia had reconstituted its military in the last 10, 15 years, so much so that although Ukraine did also revitalize its own military, the Russian military would stand head above shoulders over what Ukraine could bring to uh, bear. And as such, Russia would have the capacity to go about strategic aims, namely to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership, to uh, take uh, Ukrainian cities, as well as to essentially bring the Ukrainian government down and to install a new one to sign some sort of a peace agreement that's extremely favorable to Russia. None of that has happened, however. I mean, even Kharkiv, which is, what, a 40-minute drive from the Russian border, even Kharkiv is still flying a Ukrainian flag tonight. I guess what it puts into question then is if it's been such a massive failure 
at least according to the initial plans that they had. And then the bombardment of the cities begins. What does not I mean, you would, you would think that everyone is going to have to completely reassess how this is going to play out now. And I'm wondering if you think we've done a good enough job of doing that. To, to be sure, Russia has had some successes. It's not been a complete failure. It has taken some uh, cities, although, of course, not any of the big ones. It has taken cities like uh, Kherson and uh, Kherson or Melitopol or Berdyansk. It looks poised to take Mariupol. Um, it has taken territories uh, adjacent to those particular cities. But again, it falls far short of what um, it's initially tried to do. And so, of course, it's going to have to reassess. It's probably going to have to settle for something far less than uh, what the Kremlin initially wanted. And so that might mean, for instance, uh, new territories, especially in the Donbass, where at least at present, uh, Russian armed forces are having some success and might actually be able to cut off Ukrainian forces. But again, considering the costs involved, uh, this would, of course, would suggest that this entire exercise was simply not worthwhile from the Russian perspective. But nevertheless, war has a logic of its own. War begets more war. And so we're probably going to see some fighting uh, go on, no, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Russia is probably going to have to settle for far less uh, than what it initially set out to do. What's interesting now when you talk to people in Ukraine, of course, is that the dynamic has changed so fundamentally that they now think, people in Ukraine now think that Ukraine can win, that, th that they can essentially push Russia back out. Um, and I'm wondering if that's, if that's realistic. It depends on what you mean by win. So to some extent, not losing is a win on its own right. And Ukraine has not yet lost. It still seems to have its air defenses largely intact, its air force largely intact. It still seems to uh, have a lot of resolve, a lot of uh, forces that have been mobilized. Seems like the Russian forces, in contrast, have been uh, plagued with very low morale and all sorts of logistical issues. And so success, I suppose, would really look like not only keeping their ground, but perhaps being able to launch a few counteroffensives of the sort that we've actually been seeing as of late. So to the west of Kyiv, near the city of Makariv, it appears that the Ukrainians are starting to uh, go on the counteroffensive against Russian forces. There are even rumors that uh, Russian forces uh, west of Kyiv are at risk of being encircled. I think there will probably be a traded over the coming days. Whether Ukraine will actually be able to fully reverse uh, Russia's uh, territorial advances, especially in the south and the east, I think that's going to be a little trickier. It's not unfeasible, uh, infeasible. We are seeing some movement in the southern direction near Mykolaiv where the Russian advances have stalled. But again, do we see Ukraine going as far as um, what had been the line of contact in January of this year, that's going to be hard to tell. And I think it'll be very hard for Ukraine to reverse any of the territorial acquisitions made by Russia uh, since 2014, including, of course, uh, areas of Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. Right. So then we sort of enter this kind of this long stalemate, like something, something like we saw in Donetsk, which was de facto being controlled by Russian proxies. Uh, this idea of sort of um, destabilizing and, and sort of freezing a conflict that keeps Ukraine 
weak and surrounded to some extent, or at least with someone on its on its buffer the whole time, um, which would be you know would not be a, a complete loss for Ukraine. It would certainly put it in a very precarious situation. I want to ask you about NATO because we saw another announcement today about bolstering troops in places like Slovakia and Bulgaria. How dangerous do you think it is? How how dangerous is the situation right now for this to spill over into a NATO nation? For one, NATO has been reinforcing its presence in the so-called eastern flank, meaning countries like Poland, the Baltic countries, Romania, and now even Slovakia, Hungary, and Bulgaria, in order to keep a lid on the conflict. I think there's this understanding in some circles that uh, NATO enlargement has been to blame for this war insofar as it might have provoked Russia into attacking Ukraine, because after all, Ukraine was seeking NATO membership. But I actually think it's the other way around in the sense that Russia has had these territorial ambitions for quite some time. It's had these revisionist aims. And what NATO does in the region is to restrain those countries that are to the west of Ukraine and Russia, countries like Poland, that absent their membership in the alliance, they might actually feel somewhat uh, compelled uh, to join the fray precisely because they fear that it might be Ukraine's turn now, but it'll be their turn later in terms of being the target of Russian aggression. So what NATO is doing is trying to bolster local deterrence and defense with the unstated uh, benefit of keeping those countries calm in the face of these dangers and thereby providing a source of important restraint that keeps the lid on this particular uh, conflict. I'm speaking with Alexander Lenoshka, an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about these big NATO meetings that are coming up shortly, actually, in Brussels, as well as what the big threats are going forward. Now that this war is entering a second month, where, are the, where do the threats lie and what can be done about them? That's coming up. I'm back with Alexander Lenoshka, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Waterloo. We've been talking about the one-month anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We were speaking to each other actually one month ago tonight as the bombs started to fall uh, and had initial reaction to it at the time. Obviously, no one knew what to expect. No one knew what would come next. Uh, there were a lot of predictions that it could be over in a matter of days, given the perceived strength of the Russian military. That's not happened. Um, NATO are still working to figure out how to assist Ukraine. There's a big meeting there uh, coming up in uh, in Brussels. It's already Friday or Thursday morning in Brussels. They'll be meeting relatively soon. Justin Trudeau's there. Prime President Biden is there. What do you think will come out of this? Do you expect any big changes, uh, Alexander? Already, we've seen some very important announcements made. In fact, uh, one such announcement was the uh, decision by NATO to have four new multinational battle groups positioned in Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary. They seem to be drawn already from the forces that already are placed in those countries. And indeed, since uh, earlier this year, way before the invasion began, the United States and its uh, Western European allies have started to pour in more forces into the theater precisely to bolster local deterrence and defense uh, efforts in uh, NATO's so-called eastern flank. What's interesting about these sorts of countries is that uh, some of them have been 
relatively friendly towards Russia in recent years, Hungary being one example, Slovakia, not necessarily entirely friendly to Russia, but not exactly pro-American either. Bulgaria historically has had fairly uh, warm ties with Russia. So there are already four battle groups um, positioned in Poland, the three Baltic countries, but in, in many cases, in many ways, those aren't as interesting because those countries have had fairly acrimonious relations with Russia. But the fact that we're seeing these battle groups now in Bulgaria even does tell you how much the security environment has changed and how it's changed really for the worse. I guess the other big question, of course, coming out of Ukraine, I don't think anyone's, I mean, they're still calling for a no-fly zone. I don't think that, I think everyone's aware that that's not going to happen. Do you see any alternatives to helping Ukraine protect its skies against this incessant bombardment of civilians by Russia? No-fly zones are a non-starter precisely because going about a no-fly zone would require NATO aircraft to engage with Russian air defense systems located either within Ukraine or without Ukraine, as well as Russian aircraft. And in engaging those sorts of military assets that Russia has, there's a very clear pathway towards nuclear escalation. As such, no-fly zones are just not going to happen. But it does seem that in recent um, days, uh, Ukraine has modified its stance in a manner that I think is much more appropriate and more effective insofar as it's asking for greater and greater amounts of air defense systems that could be transferred from NATO countries. So there's talk of uh, Slovakia providing the S-300 to uh, Ukraine. It's a Soviet-era air defense system that Ukrainian air defense operators will probably be familiar with, and so it will require minimum training. There's even some talk of Turkey providing the S-400, which is much more state-of-the-art, and one that certainly was the object of much controversy because it's a fairly new uh, Russian air defense system, and the United States is trying to sell, or was trying to sell, F-35s to Turkey, so there was an obvious issue there. But that doesn't seem to be happening whatsoever. Right. I, I guess the other, you know, it, w- it was interesting to see my previous guest, Kira Rudik, who's a MP in Kiev, she's in Kiev tonight, was talking about the fact that it feels like NATO is a bodyguard standing by watching Ukraine get attacked, essentially. And I'm wondering if you think that it's at what point does push come to shove here, at least politically, there's a lot of pressure internally uh, on NATO leaders, certainly Canada and other countries to do more. So the pressure must be on at this meeting for them to come up with some kind of solution, as you were mentioning, to at least allow Ukraine to better defend itself. I don't think that assessment is fair of NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I say that with the understanding that if I were Ukrainian, I'd probably say the exact same thing and feel the exact same way. But that being said, Ukraine is not part of NATO. It's not entitled to Article 5 obligations. That boundary between Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary, and Ukraine is a very real boundary and sets the limit of these sorts of alliance responsibilities. But that being said, NATO is not simply standing by as a bodyguard. It is funneling a lot of weapons. Um, In in fact, just today, I think the United Kingdom announced about 3,000 new so-called defensive missiles. I don't know what that really means, but there you have it. Uh, I mentioned Slovakia might give this S-300. The United States and the United Kingdom have poured in 
thousands of anti-tank weapons. Canada has also provided uh, military gear. A lot of NATO countries at this point have provided military gear. Of course, those frontier countries have also hosted a lot of um, refugees fleeing the violence. Um, there's a lot of diplomatic support. Um, there are citizens joining um, foreign legions. There's a lot actually going on in terms of what NATO is providing. It's just not stepping into the fray directly. Um, it, it's doing everything short of that. Right. I guess that that was kind of the point is is not getting involved in the fight, right? Which of course, I mean, even even she understands diplomatically what those guardrails are. Uh, I, what do you, I mean, I was reading something. Obviously, this caused a bit of a kerfuffle when it was published in the New York Times today. That and for good reason, the Americans have put together a you know an advisory group about what they might do if, in fact. Uh, you know, Russia were to use chemical weapons or biological weapons or even nuclear weapons, uh, which is just good practice. But I mean, we only have a few more minutes left. But do you see this? Do you see this going into a stalemate, or are there any concerns that this may escalate now into something uh, that nobody wants to see? Yeah, I'm not sure why that caused a kerfuffle precisely because that's exactly what you want the United States government to do at this point. And indeed, it has thought about this problem in the past. This is not a new era. For the United States, we've had a Cold War. These were issues that were very much alive. They're uh, ideas that have already been in the ether to go about how to handle such a contingency. But to answer your question directly, yes, there is a pathway towards the use of weapons of mass destruction by uh, Russia. It might feel that it has totally lost the initiative. And so it might look at the precedent set in Syria, whereby... Russian-backed forces did use chemical weapons in the Damascus neighborhood of Ghouta, and they used those chemical weapons to regain the initiative. They terrorized the population, um, they scattered opposing military forces, and they were able to extract key benefits from it. Now, whether that will actually happen in this particular war is another question. I think people have learned from the Syrian example as not... as, as uh, things as to what to do and what not to do. And I think Putin has looked at some previous crises for cues as to how the West would respond, but that has underserved him precisely because the response of the West so far to his war in Ukraine has been far more in excess of what he expected. Alexander Lenushka, thank you so much for your time tonight on the one month anniversary. We spoke again. Thank you very much again for having me.